Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Saturday, September 24th, 2022. I'm Ryan Schmelz. Ukraine is front and center as world leaders gather in New York City for the UN General Assembly. President Joe Biden taking a strong stance against Russia's invasion of the country as President Vladimir Putin doesn't appear to be letting up. No nation wants to have the precedent, the example um, of a big nation on their borders invading them. I'm Chad Pergram, another week in the halls of Congress and on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue. The president this week, his biggest event was going to the U.N. General Assembly. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. President Biden covered a wide variety of topics in his second address to the United Nations General Assembly, but it was no surprise that Russia's invasion of Ukraine dominated much of his 30-minute speech. The United Nations has sent billions of dollars in aid and supplies to help the country fight back against the Russians, but not all countries have been fully on board, and others are asking, did the president and other world leaders go far enough to unite and bring more allies to the effort? President Biden um, at the UN uh, gave a spirited condemnation of the Russian actions, which I think reflects the view of most Americans. Ambassador William Taylor knows Ukraine all too well. He served as U.S. ambassador to Ukraine under three different presidents. The Russian invasion of Ukraine and its atrocities and its war crimes is repugnant to the United States. It's repugnant to the UN. Uh, the UN recognizes Ukraine as a sovereign state along with all the other members of the UN. And so it's right that the United States uh, and other nations, all of whom lined up to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So I think the UN served a, a function. Uh, but it did, did it do enough to maybe uh bring in some of the countries that have abstained in the matter. I, I believe South Africa has has abstained when it comes to co condemning Russia and, and the president has tried to meet with their president to to try to bring him on board. Do you think that did enough to maybe bring some of those hesitant countries over? It's a good question, Ryan. It's a good question because you're right. Even though well over 100 countries every time the U.N. General Assembly votes, well over 100 vote to condemn Russia. Um, and the Russians are able to cobble together five, maybe seven votes in their favor. Uh, so it's like five to seven against 100 or 101 or 140. So the overwhelming votes in the U.N. do reflect that there are some abstentions. And that's what you're asking about. And it's so interesting that uh, that the Chinese have not supported Russia in these votes. They've abstained. Uh, the Indians have not supported the Russians in these votes. They've abstained. Um, and, and you're right, there is the question about 
the abstentions and where those nations are with regard to an invasion. I have to believe that no nation wants to have the precedent, the example um, of a big nation on their borders invading them for no reason, unjustified, unprovoked. No nation wants that to be the standard of behavior in the world. So even though there is overwhelming opposition to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and even though they have no support, virtually no support among nations of the world, the abstentions, the nations who are abstaining need to think carefully about what kind of a world they want to live in. And I think in answer to your question, Ryan, I think the discussion is bringing that home to many nations. We'll see. We'll see how this how this plays out. And you just mentioned China there. How did you feel the, the president's messaging on Taiwan has been over the last week or so? Obviously, we had some major developments with that. But how do you think it was when it comes to Taiwan and China? So I think the Chinese are in a difficult position. They signed up to support President Putin before he invaded. We remember that President Putin visited Beijing just before the invasion, just at the beginning of the Beijing Olympics. And President Putin and President Xi um, signed a long document that promised no limits to their cooperation. And yet, a couple of weeks later, probably unbeknownst to the Chinese, certainly in the scope, the Russians invaded their neighbor. The Chinese have indicated with the abstentions that I just mentioned um, and other actions that they're not happy. They're not pleased. They've indicated that very directly, very publicly um, to the Russians, that they have concerns. They have questions about this. The Chinese say that they support sovereignty of nations and territorial integrity of nations. We can debate whether their actions demonstrate those principles, uh, but nonetheless, when they're, when they're, when they're I, won't say, I won't say an ally, but the Russians, when they are associated with the Chinese, do not help the Chinese when they try to make the case for some stable form uh, of international relations. So we have to push the Chinese to continue to abstain we have to push the Chinese to continue to not send military equipment. They've not been willing to send military equipment to the Russians. Uh, they've not been willing to help the Russians evade the sanctions. The Chinese know that the sanctions that we've put on the Russians could be applied to them if the Chinese try to help the Russians get around those sanctions. So we have to have a strong message for the Chinese um, on, on this issue. And do you think the negative attention uh, in the unified in the unified condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is having an impact on how China might react to the situation in Taiwan? I do. I think you're exactly right. I think the Chinese are watching what happens in Ukraine uh, very carefully. Um, I, I imagine that the Chinese are surprised um, at a couple of things. One, they're probably surprised that the West has been so unified, not just on the military side, but also on the economic sanction side, that this could happen to them, the Chinese, if they were to invade Taiwan. So that's, that's probably a surprise. They're also probably surprised at how badly the Russian military has done. And it makes them, I imagine, a little worried about their own capabilities. If the Russian military, which was supposed to have been so strong, is having such a hard time, indeed, is being beaten 
by the Ukrainian military, then the, the Chinese have to worry about their own military capabilities as well. Invading Taiwan, as we know, is much harder, much harder than the Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's 100 miles of, of water between the Chinese mainland and Taiwan. That's a hard military operation. And the Chinese are seeing how the, the Russians are being thwarted by the Ukrainian military uh, in, in, an, in what should be an easier military operation. So all to say, right, I think there are lessons that the Chinese are learning, not happy lessons, that the Chinese are learning from the Russian bungling invasion of Ukraine. And now getting back to Ukraine, do you believe the president went far enough not just to address Russia's aggression here, but also the potential you know, threat of, of, of using nuclear weaponry here, which was kind of alluded to this week, as well as the fact that we saw uh, we, we've seen Russia now looking like they're going to start calling up reserves and uh, reservists and potentially more and more soldiers into this this effort. You make a good point about the reserves. <clears throat> the Russians have a very big problem, a very big problem on manpower. They are short of soldiers. They've lost an incredible number of soldiers and they've not been able to replace them. We've seen stories how the Russians are trying to get prisoners of war in jails, they, they, um, prisoners that are held in Russian jails to fight for them. And, and they've had no success. We've seen how the Russians have been trying to get the Libyans and the Syrians and the North Koreans and the Belarusians. They have a big soldier problem. They, and so they're trying now to get more Russians by expanding the draft. The draft so far has been a failure because Russian men don't want to volunteer. And so now more Russian men are not going to want to volunteer when they expand the draft. So that is a problem for the Russians. You also mentioned the nuclear threat. President Putin and many of his, of his uh, ministers have made this threat before. Uh, they have said that, don't forget, we have nuclear weapons, as if we needed to be reminded. We have to take that threat seriously, of course. The United States has no, and our, our security forces, our military forces, we have no higher mission, no higher attempt to, to watch the Russian military and its nuclear capabilities. And so far, those careful observations, those careful alerts, being very open and very careful about what we're watching the Russians do, have indicated no increase in the Russian status of their nuclear forces. But that could change. And President Putin's irresponsible threats, um, at least implicit threats, to use nuclear weapons is not only irresponsible, uh, but is a problem for him. The Chinese, we talked about this before, the Chinese, the Indians, the South Africans that you mentioned, these nations are undoubtedly counseling President Putin not to use nuclear weapons. There is no reason for him to use nuclear weapons against a, a nuclear unarmed Ukraine. Um, this would be this would be a horrible precedent and horrible message and would further isolate him. And I'm sure he's hearing from all of these people who are abstaining, maybe even from the from the nations that are supporting him. Uh, he's hearing this. Do not use nuclear weapons. And the United States is having is giving the same message. Do not use these because there will be a response. If Mr. Putin makes a bad decision, a horrible decision, 
to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, there will be a response. There's no doubt about that. And so overall, do you think this was a successful week in terms of messaging, agreements and progress with Ukraine overall? So I was very impressed, Ryan, with the message that President Zelensky gave. First of all, he won another vote um, in the General Assembly, 107, 101 to 7, to allow him to give that speech from Kiev rather than coming to New York. Um, And so there was overwhelming support for that speech. And when he gave it, the General Assembly Hall was wrapped, was focused, was listening. Um, He gave a well-thought-out speech. He made the case against the Russian invasion, how Russia must be punished, how Russia must pay for the damage it's done to all the Ukrainian people, to all of the, of the Ukrainian infrastructure, to all of the Ukrainian families who have lost soldiers, lost loved ones. President Zelensky made this case in a passionate, focused, I think very effective way. At the end of that speech, at the end of President Zelensky's speech, he received a standing ovation, which is another indication that the United Nations, as flawed as it is, and let's be clear, the United Nations was, a found, was founded in order to avoid, prevent this kind of war, and it failed. It failed to prevent this kind of war. Nonetheless, President Zelensky encouraged the members of the United Nations to stand up to Russia, punish them, make the Russians pay. He, President Zelensky made the point about Ukrainian determination determination to win. And we're supporting his determination to win. We're supporting him with weapons and finances and moral support. And I believe, in answer to your question, Ryan, I believe that President Zelensky made the case and and won over more support from the United Nations and the people of the world to support Ukraine and to oppose the Russian invasion. And, and kind of piggybacking off that, you know, what still needs to be done here or what do you think the U.N. could be doing better to support Ukraine? President Linsky was very clear about that. He needs weapons. He needs heavy weapons. He needs longer range weapons. He needs higher altitude anti-air defense, anti-air um, weapons. Um, he needs the ability to protect his country and he needs the ability to to push the Russians out of his land. There are Russian soldiers in Ukraine now, on Ukrainian territory, on sovereign Ukrainian land. And President Zelensky made the case that he needs support. He needs financial support, absolutely. Um, He needs diplomatic support, absolutely. He needs weapon support. And he made that very clear, that with that kind of support, Continuing, I mean, he's getting very good support so far. He needs more. And if he gets that support, he will do what the international community wants done, which is to stop this invasion, is to push the Russians out of Ukraine. And President Zelensky was very clear about how to do that, and that's to support Ukraine. Now, going off of that, when you talk about funding for Ukraine or providing weapons for Ukraine, you know, every every time we hear about more aid for Ukraine come through 
from the United States, it, it kind of spills over into American politics a little bit. And you can see uh, military leaders at press conferences or different members of Congress have to kind of justify to the American people sending significant amount of mo- amount of money or resources over to Ukraine when, uh, in fact, you know, we've got a lot of issues in our country that we have to deal with that that money could be used for. You know, how long is this sustainable for the U.N. and all its different uh, members to keep sending supplies over to Ukraine uh, before anything happens? The right question. And what we see so far, and you're right to say that it's not guaranteed to continue, but so far, bipartisan support for the assistance to Ukraine, bipartisan support for opposition to Russia, bipartisan support for expansion of NATO um, to include Finland and Sweden, bipartisan support for for sanctions on, on Russia. So this broad bipartisan support, yes, there are people um, who are have questions, as they should. We are, you're exactly right, we're providing a lot of weapons, equipment, ammunition, finances, economic support to the Ukrainians. And it's because we see how important this fight is. It's, we see how important it is to stop the Russian invasion. We see how important it is for Ukraine to win. And that vision of Ukraine winning is shared as we've seen in all of these votes so far by a bipartisan group of senators and congressmen that are that are committed to Ukraine's success and that's a broad group that is a that is a broad group there are people um, that 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 want to be sure that this money is accounted for absolutely right absolutely right they should they're they're right to ask for accountability i will tell you the Ukrainians are demanding accountability as well of their own people uh, and of their own supply chain. Um, the Ukrainians have more at stake than anyone to be sure that those weapons are getting exactly to the right place on the front line so as to defend their country against this Russian invasion. So the Ukrainians have in place and the U.S. government and the embassy in Kiev has in place ways to be sure, to account for, to be very carefully alert to any problems on the distribution. And so far, they've been successful. So far, those weapons are getting to the right place. But the, but you're right about the, the interest in accountability. And you're right about the interest in making sure that all of this, all these funds are well used. And you're right, there are domestic needs, there's no doubt about it. And so we have to do both. We have to do both. We have to recognize that our security is wrapped up in Ukrainian success. Our security, our national security, the United States national security is wrapped up in that. If, if Ukraine does not win, if the Russians are able to take over Ukraine, we are in jeopardy. We are in jeopardy. Our allies are then on the direct front line, our NATO allies. So we have a lot at stake here. Um, yes, we have domestic needs and we should be dealing with those. Um, absolutely. And that does not mean we can't do both. We must do both. We must protect our security and we must take care of American people. It's it's part of the same thing. All right. Ambassador Taylor, is there anything missing that you would like to add? So, Ryan, the only other thing I would say is just to emphasize how brave the Ukrainians have been. I mean, we all, many people thought around the world um, that the Ukrainians, Ukrainians would not be able to stand up to the Russians. And we've all been amazed, um, inspired, awestruck in some real sense at how the Ukrainians have pulled together their military, 
civilians, their government, their police. They have stood up to the Russians in a way that no one thought they could. They're on the front lines, Ryan. They are on the Ukrainians are on the front lines for us. They're fighting for values that we hold. Uh, they're fighting for their own land, but they're also defending Europe uh, against Russian aggression. So we have we have a lot at stake there. Um, it's our security. It is our values that we are defending, and the Ukrainians are on the front line. Ambassador Taylor, thank you so much for joining us. Ryan, thanks for having me very much. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm here with my colleague, White House correspondent, Jackie Heinrich. Jackie, how are you? Hey, Chad, great to be with you. Likewise. So tell us what you've been working on this week and what are a couple of the issues that you think are key that the Biden administration is wrestling with at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue as we get closer to the midterm elections? Sure. Well, the president this week, his biggest event was going to the U.N. General Assembly and you know, obviously the focus was on Russia's war in Ukraine. He had some very strong words for Vladimir Putin's announcement that he was calling up 300,000 reserve troops, uh, which is a dramatic escalation in the war there. And then also uh, his re repeated his threat to potentially use nuclear weapons, uh, which we've heard from the Russians before. It's not the first time Putin has said nukes are on the table. You'll recall a few days after the invasion uh, began in February, he put his nuclear forces on high alert. So it's not, you know, something totally different than what we've heard. But as all those world leaders converged, it was widely seen as an effort to get countries to blink on Ukraine aid. And uh, all the eyes were on President Biden to see uh, how he was going to continue to shepherd uh, the, the world, the UN, through this war um, and to defend Ukraine and to defend, uh, you know, uh, he's always framed this as a struggle between autocracies and democracies. He also touched on uh, the Iran deal, trying to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon and, uh, of course, China, as they have continued to eye Taiwan. So uh, the president's week was very foreign policy focused. Uh, outside of those official events, he's attended some uh, DNC receptions. Friday, he speaks to a group, uh, the National Education Association, which has come under fire for promoting woke ideologies. Uh, there are a group of Republicans, Chad, as you well know, in the House and the Senate trying to now remove that group's charter um, for various activities that they say have uh, harmed students, promoted improperly um, non-binary I, gender identities and sexual orientations and things like that. So the president is beginning to wade into some of these hot topics that are going to, you know, affect the midterms. We've seen Democrats increasingly trying to make these midterm elections about social issues like abortion, whereas the GOP has had their focus on things like crime, the border, inflation. So we're, we're beginning to see these approaches sort of round out as we get closer and closer to November 8th, Chad. Now, you had an interview with John Kirby at the White House this week, and you 
commented to me that there was an interesting observation here about the NSC, John Kirby, and what's going on at the border. Yeah, so I was in a briefing last week, and John Kirby got a question on the border and uh, border security and immigration. And he directed, redirected that question to Corrine Jean-Pierre and told the reporter who was asking that, you know, this isn't really an issue that he has been in charge of, and that question's better directed to Corrine. That stood out to me because he is, of course, the spokesman for the National Security Council, and border security is a national security issue. When we're seeing you know, these migrants coming over the border in record numbers, it's not only a humanitarian crisis, you have babies, two-year-olds sleeping on the streets because shelters are you know, three times their capacity, and people are getting raped and murdered, of course, on the journey across the border. They're dying in record numbers trying to get here. And the Democrats have really not done anything to address this problem. They, the White House keeps punting it back to Congress and saying it's on you guys to fix. And they're stuck without really good answers. We've heard um, you know, people like the vice president make comments that the border is secure. And anyone with two eyeballs can see that, well, it's not. So the White House is starting to get more questions on this. And I asked John Kirby, at what point does this become you know, an a NSC issue? At what point can the White House announced some sort of new effort uh, to address this problem because it is going to be an issue that they are going to have to wrestle with. And it's not just, you know, Republican governors who are busing these groups of migrants to, you know, sanctuary cities and states to try to make some headlines. You've got, you know, the mayor of El Paso, a Democrat, also busing migrants to New York City because they're they don't have the capacity to deal with it in, in their community either. So this is something that I think the White House and, and the Democrats are sort of backed into a corner on. And right now, they don't really have a lot of great answers. Uh, but I had a one-on-one -on -one with Kirby and sort of we heard him repeat some of the same things that we've heard from other administration officials. But it's becoming more and more clear that it's not just a Fox News story anymore. It's on every network. They're going to continue to get questions about this. And they had better start coming up with some better answers because they don't look very good uh, with what they've been rolling out so far, Chad. Now, you know, what's interesting here is that this has become a real election issue, just not on the border, but how Republicans have kind of pirouetted this into the crime issue. You know, crime policy is, a, is a, an issue. You know, the House of Representatives passed these four crime bills. They're trying to neuter this criticism that the Democrats aren't tough on crime, that they all want to defund the police. So you're having a bit of political weaving going on here where uh, Republicans are, are trying to tie those two issues together, you know, as they go into the midterm, the border and crime, and then put that next to inflation. That's one thing that we're really seeing here right now. I mean, you know, and Congress right now, Jackie, as you know, is into its, its final push here. The House of Representatives is probably done until... Uh, after the midterms. The Senate is going to be back here uh, pretty soon. They do have to fund the government in the next week. I know that's going to be a lot of stuff, probably you and me talking off the air, mm -hmm. going back and forth between uh, the different ends of Pennsylvania Avenue as they try to get an interim spending bill done. And, you know, you know that fire about funding the government, that is not extinguished yet. Uh, there's a lot of controversy about trying to add into this uh, interim spending bill, a Band-Aid bill, uh, a provision by Joe Manchin, uh, to increase energy permitting and also approve a, a pipeline which would run in uh, Virginia and West Virginia that's important to him. That's the reason they really got, uh, you know, the, the social spending package, the climate uh, tax and health bill, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, as it was called, 
passed in August because they needed the vote of Joe Manchin. And this was this side deal that he cut with Chuck Schumer, the majority leader. There's going to be a test vote on that next week. Uh, Chuck Schumer, each time I have asked him, Jackie, each time the past three weeks, he has insisted that that's going to be in the bill. So it's in the bill, but we'll know late Tuesday night if it's going to be in the bill, because if it doesn't get 60 votes to clear a filibuster on this test vote, they probably have to take it out to fund the government. What are you hearing on your end? Well, you know, I want to touch on one thing you said, Chad, because this is an issue that is, you know, it's not just a Senate issue, but it's also a House issue. And you can d discuss, I know we were talking a couple days ago about how this is playing out with the police bill, but uh, the police reform, police funding bill. Mm -hmm. But you've got Manchin reaching out to Republicans to try to get them to vote for this side deal, this permitting uh, language that he hashed out without their help, without Republican input, uh, without anyone's input, actually. This was the, the whole IRA was actually negotiated by pretty much Manchin and Schumer themselves uh, and then presented to everyone else to, you know, to vote on. But Manchin makes this side deal with Schumer and then finds out that, well, there are not enough Democrats to potentially get this through. And so now he's looking to the other side and saying, hey, you know, all of you Republicans, this is a this is legislation that you should otherwise support and trying to, you know, back them into a corner against, you know, something that would help with the energy situation, potentially help with inflation. But at the end of the day, it's going to really sort of put the final bow on the Inflation Reduction Act, which, you know, Republicans don't want anything to do with. And that's sort of a broader theme that we all watch play out in Congress is that Democrats are not aligned and they're increasingly looking to Republicans to bail them out when they have progressives defecting and jeopardizing passage of bills. And it happened with crime earlier in the week, Chad. Yeah, you know, that was a, a tough vote uh, that they had. They had this package of four crime bills. Uh, they didn't have all the, the support on their side, notably from the squad, uh, the most progressive and liberal members in the House of Representatives, uh, who didn't think that some of the provisions went as far as they wanted on police reform. You know, they touted police reform after the death of George Floyd a couple of years ago. They've never gone that far to pass a piece of legislation. There are the talks between Karen Bass, the Democrat from Los Angeles, and Tim Scott, the Republican senator from South Carolina, blew up after extensive talks. Uh, they could just never get past the issue of qualified immunity. And that's why you had members like Cory Bush from St. Louis. You also had Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying that there were kind of two sets of rules here on Capitol Hill, one for, for some members uh, to not go through the, quote, regular order, put their, write their bills, go through committee, get a markup, get it on the floor, where these bills just kind of fell out of midair. And she was like, why, why do they get to put their bills in, meaning some of the moderates versus you know, more liberal members have to go through the, quote, regular order. So that's the tension inside the Democratic caucus. And it really came to light this week uh, with only a four seat margin in the House of Representatives for the Democrats. But again, you know, four seats is pretty tough. It's a 50 50 Senate, four seats right now in the House of Representatives. Democrats, they did manage to get a lot done uh, during this uh, session of Congress. And that's why Steny Hoyer uh, has been out in western Pennsylvania, not far from where Kevin McCarthy, the minority leader, has been touting his. Uh, commitment to America. That's the Republican campaign document for this fall. And Steny Hoyer was touting all the things that the Democrats did, passing infrastructure, a gun bill, these police bills now. But again, whether or not that resonates with the voters, sometimes you're, you're able to make a, a closing argument and that tilts things in the last five or six weeks. Sometimes the die is cast. And as you talk about uh, police and the border and crime, uh, some people think that that die was cast probably about mid-May mid or so, Jackie. Yeah, no, no kidding. And one other thing to mention is when Democrats are, are looking to Republicans 
for support passing a bill, it's oftentimes on an, an issue that Republicans generally do you know, want to do something about. Republicans want to fund police. They want to uh, you know, improve the, the nation's ability to be energy independent. And so Democrats are saying, hey, guys, you don't want to vote against these issues. Can you jump on board and support us? But the actual text of the bills is not something they've ever had a hand in hashing out. And so this is sort of the political game that we're, we're watching uh, play out. But one thing, as you bring up the commitment to America, Chad, is I, I heard, you know, Kevin McCarthy saying that the first bill in a potentially GOP-controlled House would be to repeal the IRA's uh, budget allocation for the IRS to hire 87,000 new uh, employees. And, you know, that's been a big talking point for Republicans, but it makes me think, okay, so what happens if that passes? Now you have, you know, a, the Inflation Reduction Act that had this big provision that it would be paid for in part by uh, increased uh, tax compliance enforcement that would, you know, generate revenue. And how does that throw off all of the calculations for how much spending uh, has happened under the Biden administration, which pot it's coming out of, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and with you know, the economy the way that it is, there's been a major, major focus on how much money the government is spending, Chad. And that issue has just been radioactive uh, for the Democrats. As soon as they put that out there, that was one of the first talking points we heard about. 87,000 new IRS agents. Uh, you know, the IRS is always a, an agency that uh, you know, most people don't like. And any time that one uh, party or the other can beat it up, they did so, and this is where they were able to kind of connect uh, the Democrats to passing this bill and say, look, this is going to be the consequence. The IRS is going to come after you. So, Jackie, I understand you have some very important questions. For me. I want to know when the last time you saw an Inside the Park home run was. Just, <laughs> I've been dying to know. <laughs> well, you were there the last time I saw an Inside the Park home run. Uh, to the listeners, Jackie and I and a few other colleagues from Fox, we were at a, a Nationals-Orioles baseball game at Nats Park just a few blocks from Capitol Hill a couple of weeks ago, and there was an inside-the-park home run. And Jackie and some of the other people said, well, when was the last time you ever saw an inside-the-park home run, Chad? And, and I talked about an event about 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago, when I was a kid. You know, I'm a partisan of the Cincinnati Reds. I know you like the Boston Red Sox. Um, by the way, the Reds beat them in seven games in the 75 World Series, but we'll talk about that another time. Um, <laughs> and, and, anyway, uh, but, uh, but there was a, an inside-the-park home run hit by Hector Cruz, who played for the Reds. He also played for the, uh, uh, the Giants a little bit, the Cardinals, and he had played for the Reds a bit. It was a home run, left field. The left fielder fell down, crashed into the wall, and first time I ever saw an inside-the-park home run, and 40-some-odd and years elapsed in between that. And you asked me about this on Instagram, and, uh, and we did a little Instagram video about that a couple weeks ago. We did, and you know what's so funny? So Chad, for all of our listeners, does not have Instagram, and so I relished at the opportunity to share <laughs> Chad outside of work with all of the my followers and it's so you know people loved of course seeing him uh, outside of Congress enjoying himself and telling personal stories and so I posed a question to my followers should Chad join Instagram I did one of those little Instagram polls and uh, I was shocked that it was so evenly split between the, the options were, should Chad join Instagram, 1,000% yes, or option B was, Chad has no time for this nonsense. So I think people 
Chad, understand that you're a very busy guy. Um, well, it's divided government, 50-50 Senate, almost split house. It's natural <laughs> that we would have that, right, Jack? <laughs> it's so apropos. Absolutely. So what are you up to this weekend? I am going to Nat Stadium, where we last saw each mm -hmm. other, and I'm going to see Elton John. It is his mm. farewell tour, and I'm so excited to be able to see him. I've never seen him before, and I actually haven't been to a concert in years. I, I actually cannot remember, now that I'm mm. trying to think of it, I can't remember the last concert I went to. Um, you have a favorite and, song of his? Oh, gosh. I always liked Philadelphia Freedom. I love Philadelphia Freedom. It's a mm -hmm. really good one. Yeah, it just has you a know, good beat. Tiny to it Dancer. Yes. Of course. I I have a friend who she is a big Elton John fan and has seen him all over the country and wears, you know, just, you know, anytime I see her out, you know, just casually, she's always wearing like an Elton John shirt or some get up that has something to do with Elton John. I have not been to a concert since the pandemic. I can tell you the last concert I went to, and it might be the next one I go to if I'm around. And this, some of this is contingent upon the. Uh, the congressional schedule here in, in October, or if I go away, I might uh, take a trip or something here. It the last like concert you were going to say something dark. If I'm around, I was like, Chad, what's happening? Well, well if I'm around, yes. Yeah, so, so, well, I, I, <laughs> the last concert I saw was Iron Maiden in, uh, oh my at, gosh. In, in, in Pittsburgh. Iron Maiden is one of my favorite bands, and I saw them in Pittsburgh in the late summer of 2019. And then, of course, we've had a pandemic, and a lot of people haven't been out to concerts again. But they are coming both through New York. I think they're playing in Newark. New Jersey in mid-October, and then they come through D.C. a little bit later in October. But it's a question now whether or not I'll be there. So I guess I have to ask you, what is your favorite Iron Maiden song, right, Jackie? You you, you obviously have a favorite Iron Maiden song, right? Uh, would you judge me if I said that I didn't? <laughs> oh, Fear of the Dark, Number of the Beast, Run to the Hill. I... Surely you like one of those. English heavy metal has never really been my, uh, <laughs> my forte, my, my jam, but I, I could, I could get used to it, I guess, for you, Chad, just for you. <laughs> I'll send you a couple <laughs> tunes and see, maybe we can discuss, we do a little music critique, see what you think of those. You know, their, their lead singer, Bruce Dickinson, they have this, this mascot, Iron Maiden does, called Eddie, who's this monster. And they always bring Eddie out on stage and he's on their album cover, this very iconic album art they have. And he is a licensed pilot. And so their jet that he flies, Bruce Dickinson flies is called not Air Force One, but Ed Force One. And he actually flies. And, and believe it or not, Laura Engel, our colleague here at Fox, she has done not one, but two stories about Iron Maiden and Bruce Dickinson flying Ed Force One. So we need oh, to bring you cool. into the Iron Maiden fold here, Jackie, with Laura. Well, and everybody else. you know, when it comes to English rock bands, I've always been more of a Pink Floyd girl, but, you know, ah, I could get used to some Iron Maiden. I like it. I like it. Well, we will. We will. I think next time we're going to have to talk uh, talk music, and not politics. We'll do that. So, Jackie, great to talk with you. Have a good weekend. Enjoy the show, and we will expect a full report on Monday. Sounds good. Thanks, Chad. Talk to you later. Tomorrow on the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Who is the hidden voter? And how comfortable are they sharing who they voted for to pollsters? And with just a few weeks before the midterm elections, a conversation with Fox News Radio political analyst Josh Kroshauer about the tightening of the Nevada Senate race. Until then, I'm Ryan Schmelz. Thanks for listening to the Fox News Rundown from Washington.
From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.